O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Matthew chapter 18 today, the second half of the chapter, beginning at verse 15. So if you'll open your Bibles, we'll go ahead and read through the remainder of the chapter. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt." So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, Before we begin looking at this particular section of Matthew chapter 18, I should have made an announcement at the beginning. There is going to be um, a gathering of the grandparents' ministry at 1.15 today. So uh, if you want to... um, be a part of that that's going to be taking place down the hall in the youth room at 1.15, but immediately following this study. Well, we come here to Matthew chapter 18, the second part of the chapter, and it's important, I think, that we view what Jesus says here in this particular parable of the unforgiving servant or the unmerciful servant in the light of what has gone before. Now, the gospel writers, as I pointed out to you before, organize their material 
Uh, they had a flow in mind. Uh, they did not simply collect these stories and sort of just jot them down with no rhyme or reason to them. And that means that if you want to understand the second part of Matthew chapter 18, it's important that you understand the first part of Matthew chapter 18, because what Jesus says here in verses 15 and following is in many respects in response to the question that was posed at the very beginning of the chapter. So let's just remember what chapter 18 is all about. This chapter began with the disciples coming to Jesus with a serious question. Jesus had for some time now been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And we've talked at great length about that. But the disciples, we said, really didn't understand, even at this point, what Jesus meant by the kingdom. They were still thinking in terms of some sort of physical kingdom, a return, a return to the Davidic dynasty. Jesus was going to reestablish the glory days of Israel and establish himself as the sovereign. And the assumption was if Jesus was going to be the king, it would be great to be close to the king. Uh, we know that two of them had already come to Jesus and said, let me sit one at your right hand, one at your left when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus had answered that, but here they are again, still thinking along those lines. And they come to him at the beginning of chapter 18, verse 1, with the question, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? These men wanted to be great. Now, they weren't great at this point, but they were in the presence of greatness, and they had a great desire to be uh, at the top. And what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus answered their question. Actually, he didn't. Uh, Jesus gave them a response, but he didn't actually answer their question. Their question was, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? And you'll notice by Jesus' response that he doesn't really say who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. What he does is he rephrases it. He says basically to these men, you shouldn't be worried about who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. If you were wise, you'd be concerned about even getting into the kingdom of God. As I said, that's not the question that they were asking, but that was where Jesus went. And I think it's because that's where they needed to hear the Lord. They had a spiritual problem here. They were only concerned about greatness. Jesus was concerned about something else. Chapter 18 is really about forming in the disciples the character of the citizen of the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus says is don't worry about getting being great in the kingdom of God, be worried about getting into the kingdom of God. And you want to know what it takes to be a member, a citizen, a subject of the king, and a citizen of the kingdom of God. He says, here's what is required. And he begins to answer his own question with these words. And calling to him a little child, he put them in the midst of them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God for whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, don't even worry about the greatness part yet. If you just want to get into the kingdom of God, there are a number of things that are required. And the first thing is this, you have to become like a little child. Now we said there are some things about which children are not to be praised, but there are other things uh, children are like that Jesus considers to be praiseworthy. What is it about children that is praiseworthy? Well, first of all, they're teachable. They are willing to be taught. Uh, they don't think that they have all the answers. It's only as we grow older that we say that we have all the answers. I pointed out to you some weeks ago that when little children come to you, they are so eager to learn. Teach me 
how to make my bed. Teach me how to ride a bike. Teach me how to tie my shoes. It's only later when they become teenagers that they say, leave me alone, I can do it myself. So little children, and that's the word that is used here, incidentally, in the Greek, it was basically a toddler that Jesus put in their midst. He said, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to become like this little child. And certainly that would have been teachable. But it wasn't just teachable. Children are not just that. They are also trusting. They'll take you at your word until you give them some reason not to. And Jesus was saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become trusting like a little child. But the most important aspect of a child in terms of the kingdom of God, Jesus would say, is humility. Being teachable, being trusting, all of those are characteristics of a humble spirit. And that's really what Jesus was saying to them. He said, you're so concerned about greatness. You want to be at the top. But really, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to put yourself at the bottom. You have to be humble like a little child. Children are not vying for position, at least when they're young. When they get older, we teach them to vie for position. You want to be number one. When they're little, they're perfectly satisfied. Perfectly satisfied playing with anybody no matter who they are. So that's the first thing Jesus said to the disciples in answer to their question, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus said, if you even want to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to become humble like a child. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, if you want to be a citizen of my kingdom, you not only have to be humble like a little child, you also have to have compassion for the lost. That's what verses 10 and following are all about. Jesus said, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices more over it than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to be humble like a child, and you've got to have a heart for the lost sheep. Compassion for those who have gone astray. That is a characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And then finally, Jesus says, if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, your life has to be characterized by forgiveness. And that's where we pick up today in verses 15 and following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then Peter comes up to him in verse 21 and says, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So what kind of of a person gets into the kingdom of God? What kind of a person is humble, has a compassion for the lost, and is forgiving? What is Jesus painting a picture of there? He's painting a picture of himself, isn't he? That's what the first part of Matthew chapter 18 is really all about. Jesus says, don't worry about being great in the kingdom of God. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, here's what you've got to be like. You've got to be like me. You've got to be Christ-like. It's my kingdom. 
And that's exactly what Jesus was like, wasn't he? He humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2 has that great hymn of kenosis in which we're told our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself and came down and took the form of a servant. The Greek word there is doulos. It literally means bondservant. Took the form of a slave and became obedient unto death, even death upon a what? A cross. Jesus had the glory of heaven. He was the second person of the triune Godhead. And for us and for our salvation, He did what? He humbled Himself. And He came down and He was born in a manger and He lived a life of abject poverty and He died the most excruciating, degrading death possible, the death of the cross, and He did it all for us. Now that's humility. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to be like that. Because that's the way I am. Jesus had compassion for the lost, didn't he? On one occasion, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. There's a great example of this in Luke chapter 19. Keep your finger there in Matthew, if you will, and to Luke for just a moment. You know the story. It's a very familiar story. If you went to Sunday school for any length of time, you know this story in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a what? A wee little man. Luke chapter 19, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, right there, that tells us a great deal about this man, and it tells us that he was despised by the Jews. This was the kind of tax collector that collected taxes for the Romans. Now, I think I pointed this out to you before. One of the reasons why the Jews hated tax collectors in particular is because the tax collectors were Jewish, generally speaking, but they worked for the Romans. And the Romans were regarded as the enemy, a pagan polytheistic empire that was oppressing the Jewish people. That's why they were hoping the Messiah would come and drive out the Romans. So here were Jews who were working for the Romans. And furthermore, they would oftentimes be rich people because they collected more tax than was actually required by the empire. And they pocketed the rest. And the Roman Empire didn't care. They looked the other way. As long as they got their fair share, they didn't care what the tax collectors did. So tax collectors were notorious and they were corrupt. And we're told Zacchaeus was one of them and he was rich and everybody knew how he got his money. So Zacchaeus is a despised, feared man. But he'd heard about Jesus, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. And so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the what? The lost. Think of the worst person, the most notorious person you can possibly imagine in our community, and Jesus wants to go and have dinner at their house. And we say, how in the world can he do that? And Jesus said, it's because I have a heart for the lost sheep. I have come into the world for the express purpose. I was born, I lived, I died for one purpose and one purpose only, to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus not only had compassion for the lost, but Jesus was forgiving. If you think about it, his whole life was characterized by forgiveness. The greatest example of that being on the cross. Here was Jesus. He had been arrested, falsely accused, tried before the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate, found innocent of having violated any Roman laws whatsoever. Pilate wants to release Jesus, even makes a big production about washing his hands in the presence of the people, saying, I find no fault with this man. But the people begin to shout, this man claims to be a king. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate becomes nervous, decides to hand Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus is treated like an animal. He's already been declared innocent, but he's treated like an animal. He is taken out and publicly flogged within an inch of his life by the Roman soldiers, abused by them, forced to carry that heavy cross through the streets of Jerusalem, whipped and pushed about like some sort of animal. He falls down several times en route, so weakened by the beating that he had taken that somebody else has to come and be forced to carry his cross. He gets up there to the place of crucifixion. They drive the nails through his wrists and through his feet. They plunge a spear into his side. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. They hoist him up against the sky, this innocent victim, and they continue to hurl insults at him. If you really are the Son of God, come on down. I'm thirsty. Well, give him something to drink. Give him some vinegar. Why don't you? And they just continue to abuse him. And what did Jesus say in the midst of all of that? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. See, what Jesus is describing there in Matthew chapter 18, in the first part of this chapter, is what it takes, the kind of person that enters into the kingdom of God. And the kind of person that enters the kingdom of God is a person who is like the king. Don't worry about being great, folks. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, that's what you've got to be like. You've got to be Christ-like. That's what Jesus is saying there. Now, as you can imagine, and you're probably sitting out there thinking to yourself, wow, that's a... That's a high standard. And the disciples, no doubt, were thinking the same thing. All right, we've, we've got to forgive, but forgiveness is hard. And, and does that mean if we forgive people that we just turn a blind eye to injustice? Because there is a lot of injustice in the world. Isn't there any such thing as righteous indignation? How many of you want to know the answer to that question? Well, that's why Jesus goes on to tell the parable that follows. The parable of the unforgiving servant. But before he does that, he does something very interesting. Jesus says, no, we're not supposed to ignore sin. The God who is a God of mercy and forgiveness is also a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. 
Don't we all want to know that the person who is engaged in human trafficking, who's abducting young girls and using them in a sex trade, don't we want to know that one day that person is going to be called to account? Of course we do. And Jesus said, as Christians, we should be as just as concerned about justice as God is concerned about justice. He says, but there is a right way and a wrong way to deal with sin. And that's what he's talking about here in verses 15 and following. He says, if you find that you have been wronged, somebody has done you an injustice, you are obligated to forgive them, but if they keep doing it over and over again, there is a proper way to deal with it. And this is what he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the standard, folks. If somebody does you wrong, your job is not to go out and talk to everybody else about how you've been wronged. I, I sometimes say to people, it's perfectly fine to pray behind another person's back. It's not okay to talk behind their back. And so Jesus makes it very clear. Yes, there will be times when an injustice has been done to you and you have every right to seek justice, but the way you do that is important. The first thing you do is you go and you speak to your brother alone. You don't bring other people into it because the purpose here is to restore your brother. He's your brother. What you want is a restoration of the relationship, and so you go to your brother. If he does not listen to you, verse 16, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was according to the Jewish law. If this person is still doing injustice to you, taking advantage of you, perhaps suing you to take your property, whatever it may be, your first obligation is to go and try to be reconciled. If that doesn't work, then take two or three other witnesses. So it's not just your word against his but the whole thing can be established in a court of law. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then go and tell it to the church. That is, take it to the body of Christ and let the church decide. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, well, then let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same words, incidentally, that Jesus spoke to Peter up there in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the question, Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, This is right. This has been revealed to you, not by men, but by my Father in heaven. And you are the rock upon which I shall build my church. And truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In heaven, which tells us, incidentally, that this power to bind and to loose was not given to Peter explicitly by virtue of some office that he was going to hold or by virtue of his confession. This was something that was given to the church, to the body of Christ, of which Peter was a representative. And then Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two, or you, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus said, this is the way you deal with somebody who has done you wrong. Ultimately, you are to forgive them, but if they continue to do it, this is how you are to handle it. I want to suggest to you so many of the problems that we face in our interpersonal relationships would be easily resolved if we would follow the pattern that Jesus sets out for us here. 
You got a problem with somebody? Oftentimes what we do is we go and talk to other people about it, don't we? The biblical standard is you go to the person and you confront them. If that doesn't work, you go with two or three witnesses. Believing witnesses, especially if you're dealing with Christians. Now, we're, we're talking about brother to brother here. That's the way Jesus uses it here. And the third thing is this, if they refuse to listen even to their other brothers, then take it before the whole church and let the church decide the matter. But here's the important thing, Jesus says. This whole process is meant to be restorative, not retributive. The whole point of confronting your brother is to what? To restore the relationship and to restore them to the fellowship of the church. The purpose is not to punish them. You know, oftentimes we think, well, I'm in the right and they're in the wrong and I'm going to make that clear and I'm going to bring witnesses and I'm going to bring the church and I'm going to shame them in the presence of everybody. Let me tell you something, that is not a desire for restoration, that is a desire for vengeance. And that is why Jesus follows up this very sound, practical advice with this parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. You know, sometimes when you read that, you think to yourself, well, there's old Peter again, splitting hairs. Peter just wants to know, well, am, am I free after seven times? I don't think this is Peter trying to split hairs. I, I think what Peter is doing here is acting, asking an honest question. You know, sometimes Peter got it wrong. But I think Peter was a, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. I, I think he was really striving. He may have been a little dull at times, but I think he was really struggling to follow Jesus Christ. And I think he asks this question because he know that among the Jewish teachers of the day, there was a limit to how many times you had to forgive your brother. According to the rabbis, you had to forgive your brother three times. That's what the rabbis of Jesus' day taught. So if somebody offends you once, you're obligated to forgive them. If they offend you a second time, you're obligated to forgive them. If they do it a third time, you are obligated to forgive them. But if they do it a fourth time, three strikes and they're out. You don't have to forgive them at that point. You're free to seek vengeance or retribution or whatever it may be. Now, Peter had been with Jesus long enough to know that was not the way Jesus operated. And so when Peter came to Jesus, the question he doesn't ask is, am I free after the third time? He comes to Jesus and he said, well, we know, Lord, that, that we have to be better than the Jewish rabbis of the day. So um, how about seven times? If I forgive my brother seven times, am I free after that? Peter actually thought he was being generous. And wouldn't we? I mean, if somebody does the same thing to you over and over again, what do we say? I'm no doormat. Am I, am I not free? I mean, once, I, I knew a man, his mother used to say, once, shame on you. Twice, shame on me. The third time, you're getting a licking. Peter says, seven times? We think to ourselves, my goodness, seven times, that's impressive. But Jesus says, no, I tell you what, 
70 times 7. Now, don't go and do the math and think, oh, my goodness, 70 times 7, that's 490 times. After that, I'm free. Obviously, that is not the point that Jesus is making here. How many times are we to forgive our brothers? As many times as they seek it. As many times as they come and ask to be forgiven, you and I are obligated to forgive. Now, you say, why are we obligated to do that? Well, that's what this parable is all about. Verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master did what? Didn't give him more time to pay. The master forgave the debt. The master forgave the entire debt. But when the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went out and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The power of this parable is found in the amount that was forgiven the first servant. Now, there have been those who have been tried over the centuries to calculate the exact amount that Jesus was talking about. Uh, Some of this gets lost on us, but to just give you an idea, a talent uh, in that first century Jewish context was the largest denomination of currency. And 10,000 was one of the largest common numbers. Now, a talent would have been either a talent of silver or it would have been a talent of gold. Let's assume that it's a talent of gold. A talent of gold would have been so many ounces of gold and people have calculated it out. In today's currency, the calculation comes to somewhere around 3 trillion, 150, or no, is that... Is that three billion? Three billion. See, I, don't, I can't even figure out that number. It's so high, I can't even imagine. I can't even picture a million, folks. I mean, some of you may be able to imagine a million. I can't imagine a million. I certainly can't imagine a billion. And when it comes to trillions, well, only the Congress understands trillions of dollars because they give it away. The point that Jesus is making is that this was an enormous debt. Now, of course, nobody in that first century context would have had that kind of money and that kind of a debt. That's Jesus' point. This is exaggeration in order to make a point. It's Jewish hyperbole. But Jesus is saying there is a man who owes a billion, a trillion dollars in debt, and he comes to his master, and his master wants him to go to debtor's prison and pay every last penny, 
and he begs for forgiveness, and he's forgiven this enormous debt. But then the first thing he does is he does what? He goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him a couple hundred denarii. And he does what? He chokes him and demands that he give that money and has him thrown into prison. No concern for his family or anything else. Even though he's been forgiven, he is not forgiving. And Jesus is saying that is a picture of you and me. Which servant are we in this story? We tend to think we're the one that owns a couple denarii. Jesus' point is that we are the one who owes that enormous debt, that incalculable debt. It is the debt of your sin and my sin. It is the sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. It took his death, his shed blood, in order to forgive you and to forgive me and open the way to everlasting life. That is the debt that we have been forgiven. And here comes our neighbor, and we're asking the question, after the third time or the seventh time, am I free not to forgive my brother? Jesus is saying, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you've got to be forgiving in nature, and your forgiveness needs to rival that of your king who forgave you an incalculable debt. Now, there is a true example of this in Scripture. Jesus uses a parable, but there is, I think, a true or similar example to this in Scripture that is very helpful. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Luke chapter 7. Beginning at verse 36. And one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And of course, the Pharisees were Jesus' enemies. Think to yourself, well, why in the world would Jesus go and eat with a Pharisee? Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the what? The lost. And believe me, the Pharisees were lost. So even though it was an enemy inviting him in, Jesus nevertheless went and he ate with this Pharisee. And he took his place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city. Now, do I need to translate to you what a woman of the city is? A woman of the streets, a soiled dove. This woman is a prostitute. And behold, a woman of that city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. The ointment would have been very valuable. It was something that would have been worth an exorbitant amount of money. If she had been um, a more virtuous woman, it probably would have been a portion of her dowry. But this was an expensive and costly offering that she was making. Look at verse 39, at the response of the host. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, not get this woman out of here. How dare she do this to Jesus, a guest in my house? What does he say? He's critical of Jesus. He said, if this man were a prophet, a real spokesman for God, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering 
said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the women, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Key verse in that little pericope is this. Those who have been forgiven much love much. If you have a longing to love Jesus Christ more, if you recognize that you are not as in love with Jesus Christ as you know you should be or as much as you would like to be, and you're wondering how do you get there, the first answer is you pray about it and here's what you pray for. That God will reveal to you the depths of your own sin. That you will begin to see yourself, not as you imagine yourself to be, or even as other people may see you, but that you will see yourself as God sees you, a broken, wretched creature. How many of you have ever read the story, The Picture of Dorian Gray? Great story, short story, you know it. It's a story about a man who sells his soul to the devil. And he sells his soul to the devil so that he can remain forever young. And he has a beautiful portrait painted of himself when he's at the height of his glory. And it is a magnificent painting. And Dorian admires that painting. He's like Narcissus. He's fallen in love with himself. And so what he does is he sells his soul to the devil so that he can remain forever young. But having sold himself to the devil, having given himself over to the enemy, he then begins to live a life of evil and wickedness and licentiousness and murder, and he abuses and uses people. But the amazing thing is he never ages. He's as handsome as he ever was. But the curse is this. The painting, with each successive sin that he commits, with each successive evil that he engages in, the painting becomes uglier and uglier. It reveals his true nature. Until eventually what Dorian has to do is put a drape over the painting because he cannot bear to see himself. The world sees him as this young, handsome man, but the painting reveals his true nature. And so he puts a drape over it so that nobody can see it, so that he doesn't have to gaze upon it. And let me tell you, my friends, so many of us put a drape over our lives so that we don't have to see ourselves for what we really are. 
We want to compare ourselves to other people and say, well, compared to them, I'm not so bad. But how does God see us? God challenges us to do the very thing that Dorian Gray didn't want to do, and that is pull back the drape and see yourself in the light of eternity and recognize that you have been forgiven an enormous debt. That because of your sin, you are the most heinous, corrupted creature imaginable, and yet God in His mercy loves you, condescended, came down, mounted the arms of the cross, and did all of that, that you might be forgiven this great debt, and your brother comes and sins against you, and you cannot forgive him? Jesus said, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you need to love much, and you cannot love much unless you realize you have been forgiven much. So if you want to love Jesus Christ, and as Christians we know we should, just ask the Lord to reveal to you the sin in your life. Keep that prayer coming, and you'll begin to see yourself as you really are. You'll come to the point where you just want to put a drape over it all. You'll come to a point where you are absolutely desperate And then all of a sudden, the figure of Christ upon the cross and that place where He was most glorified will be so beautiful to you that like this notorious woman of the street, you will want to do nothing more than to kiss His feet and to wipe His feet with your tears. Here was a Pharisee who in the eyes of the world looked so righteous and noble and acceptable and upstanding and was lost. And here was a woman who saw herself for what she really was and begged for mercy and entered the kingdom of God. Karl Barth, who was one of the great theologians of the 20th century, some would say the most influential theologian of the 20th century, once said that of all the groups that he ever had to preach to, the easiest group that he ever had to preach to were a bunch of people in jail. He said he preached to them in a notorious prison. There were sex offenders there, rapists, murderers, thieves, and he said, I preached to them and they heard the message. And he said, the reason they heard the message and responded in a way that people in an acceptable local congregation never did is said because he didn't have to persuade them that they needed a Savior. The convicted rapist and sex offender and murderer and thief knew how terrible they were And the idea that there was a God who would come down and even from the cross cry out, Father, forgive them, was so liberating that they broke down and they wept. Those who had been forgiven much loved much. And that is the point that Jesus is making in this parable. How many times, Peter, do you forgive your brothers? I'm not going to give you an exact amount of time. All I'm going to ask you is to think about how much you've been forgiven. And then you answer the question for yourself. And indeed, Peter did. Now, this section ends with what some might regard as a somewhat troubling statement. Go back now to Matthew. Jesus says to Peter and the others, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What will I do to you? Well, he said, 
the unmerciful servant was arrested and thrown into prison until he could pay the debt in full. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that's what's going to happen to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. (laughs) And it's raised all kinds of questions in the minds of some people because it seems to imply a works righteousness. Unless you do this, you will not get this. And we all know that the New Testament teaches that we are not saved by our works, are we? What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. Jesus himself said that in John chapter 6. Somebody asked him, what what works do I have to do in order to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, the work that must be done in order to enter the kingdom of God is to believe on the one that God has sent. So Jesus is very clear. What is necessary to enter the kingdom of God? Belief. Paul makes it clear we're not saved by our works, we're saved by grace. And yet Jesus here in Matthew says that unless you do this, you will not get that. How do we deal with that? Well, some have suggested that this is, again, just an example of Jewish hyperbole. Jesus is just exaggerating to make a point, but I don't think that's the case. The whole point of this parable is about forgiveness. It's about forgiving in the way that we have been forgiven. And Jesus says, if you are not prepared to do it, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what this chapter is all about. What kind of a person enters the kingdom of God? Not the one who's greatest in the kingdom, but who's going to even get into the kingdom of God? The one who is humble like a child, the one who has a heart for the lost, and the one who is willing to forgive the way that you have been forgiven. I think the key to understanding this passage is to recognize that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace. God's undeserved, unmerited favor. We are justified, Paul says, by faith. Martin Luther called that the doctrine of the standing church. Justified by faith. Now, you know what the word justify means? I've illustrated it this way before. To be justified means to be lined up with God. The idea here is that you and I, because of our sin, are not lined up with God. And unless we get lined up with God, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is a legal term. It's a forensic term. But one way to understand it is when you do word processing. If you look at your Bibles, probably most of your Bibles have the text justified. You'll notice that the left margin and the right margin line up, don't you? In other words, some lines are not shorter than other lines. So if you're ever doing uh, word processing on your computer and you want to make the document look good, what you do is you blacken in the space, you go to the top, you hit the justify button, and all your margins go flush. That's what it means to be lined up with God. You are justified, and that justification, getting lined up with God, comes by faith, not by your works. There's nothing that you and I can do to get lined up with God. That's why it's a gift. But while that is a part of salvation, I want you to understand justification is not the whole of salvation. In addition to justifying us, which is a legal declaration, God does something else. He causes us to be reborn. He regenerates us. He gives us a new nature. Keep your finger here in Matthew and turn to Ephesians 2 for just a minute. 
Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire New Testament. Ephesians is probably my favorite book in the New Testament because all of the great doctrines of the faith are here, but they're here in an abbreviated form, so you're capable of digesting them in a way that you can never easily do with Romans. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the human condition. And listen to how he describes it. He said, but as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul says that's a picture of the human condition apart from God. As for you, you are a number of things. You were dead, first of all. Dead in your trespasses and in your sins. What does that mean? It means you were dead to God. When somebody says, you are dead to me, that's about the worst thing they could possibly say, isn't it? It doesn't mean that they hate you. It doesn't mean that they love you. Indifference. You're dead. Paul says the human condition apart from God is that we are all dead in our trespasses and in our sins in the way we used to live, following the passions of this world. Now you say, no, I don't understand what Paul's saying. He says we're dead, but we're alive following the passions of the flesh. That's right. Paul is basically saying that you and I are spiritual zombies. We're dead in terms of our relationship of God. And why are we dead to God? We are dead to God because of the way that we have been living. Following our own passions, our own desires, irrespective of Him and His law. And so our spiritual condition before God is we're dead. Now here's the problem. If you're dead, what can you possibly do to improve your lot? You see, Paul doesn't say that we're sick in our sins. If you're sick, there's always the chance of recovery, isn't there? Be it ever so slight, as long as there is life in the body, there is. It may be ever so remote, but there is still the possibility that you may recover. But when you're dead, dead means dead. Dead is a coffin nail. And a dead person can't do anything. And Paul says that's what we were. We were dead. And not only dead, but to make matters worse, we were children of wrath. You know, we live in a world in which most people tend to think that we're all children of God. Have you ever heard that? Adolf von Harnack, who was a 19th century theologian, used to say that it's the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. God is the father of all mankind, and that means that we're all brothers. That is not the biblical picture at all. We are not all children of God. We are all creatures of God, but we are actually, Paul says, children of wrath because of our sin, and we're dead. So it's doubly bad. We're dead, and we're under God's judgment. And you can't get out from underneath the judgment. Why? Because you're dead. And dead people can't do anything. And so what Paul is painting here is a desperate picture of the human condition. It can't get any worse than that. But, there's that glorious word, but, 
Look at verse 4. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. God's love is not dependent on us getting our act together. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins did what? made us alive together in Christ, made us alive. Now, you see, what I want you to notice here, and and this is really deep theology, and I don't think we have the time to go into it today, so you're wondering, well, why are you throwing it out to us? Just to sort of, you know, make life interesting. (laughs) What I want you to notice is that regeneration... New birth precedes faith. We tend to think I have to have faith in order to have regeneration. That's not the way Paul depicts it here. Dead people can't have faith because they're dead. The reason why it's all of mercy, the reason why it's all of grace, as Paul goes on to say in the following verses, is because we're dead. But God, who is rich in mercy and loves us in spite of the fact that we're dead and under wrath, makes us alive again. We are saved by grace, therefore, not by works. And when He makes us alive, what does He do? He puts into us a new nature. He puts into us His nature. God begins by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's how you know you're saved. It's not because of the things you do. It's because as you look at your life, it doesn't mean you're perfect, but you realize that you are growing in grace. You have a desire to become more like Christ. And the way you live is an illustration of the way Christ lived. You want to know if you're saved? You want to know if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God? Don't worry about being great, but you want to know if you're getting in? You want to know if you really do believe in Jesus Christ? That you really do have that living faith? That you have been made regenerate, born again? Ask yourself the question. Am I humble? Do I submit myself? That's what the word means, to place yourself under. Do I place myself under the authority of God, under the authority of His word, and I want to live according to that word, not to the ways of the world? Do I have a passion for those who are lost, who are perishing? Because that's what I once was. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I what? I see, I understand. And do I forgive others? the way that I have been forgiven. A great, incalculable debt I owed. I pulled back the drape. I see myself for what I really am and discover that I am loved in spite of that. And having been forgiven much, I love much. Jesus says to Peter, you want to know what it takes to get into the kingdom of God? That's the kind of person that is a citizen of the kingdom of God. May God grant that we may be like that. 
Because people like that change the world. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these words in Matthew. They are powerful words. Peter probably got more in response to that question than he had hoped or anticipated. But they were words that he needed to hear, and they are words that we need to hear. So, Lord, grant us, above all things, to see ourselves in the light of eternity, to see ourselves not as we imagine ourselves to be or as our neighbor thinks we are, but grant us the grace to look within, see ourselves as you see us, and in our desperate state, suddenly recognize that we are loved in spite of that. And having been forgiven so much, grant that we may forgive others and so prove ourselves children of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.